episode 47. 47 is the atomic number of silver. I'm going to stay away from the whole silver thing. Good idea. The P-47 Thunderbolt was a fighter plane in World War II. At the age of 47, no joke, I bought a leaf blower and I would turn it on to make all the rival dads jealous. That's how the dog rolls. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 47th episode of The Prov G Show. In today's episode, we speak with Whitney Tilson, the founder and CEO of Empire Financial Research. We discuss with Whitney the current state of the markets, sectors he's bullish on, and his investing advice. Okay, what's happening? Not a lot. But let's stick with the GameStop and Wall Street bets news, which has gripped all of our attention for the past week and is now being turned into a Netflix movie. All right, then. Now we know it's real. Now we know it's a permanent part of the zeitgeist. I want to highlight a couple of key learnings from our conversation with my colleague, Aswat Damodaran, specifically the notion of long-term investing and identifying your end game. Aswat said that you, as an investor, could have beaten 90% of active money makers on Wall Street by just buying index funds over the last decade. There's also research showing that 80% of day traders lose money. My experience has been whenever I pay too much attention to my stocks, I end up losing money. And there's research showing that the more time you spend trading stocks, if you aren't in that business full time, that you lose money. Now, now, is it a great way to learn? Sure. And if you approach it that way, fantastic. Are the markets a wonderful way to make a living if you uh, commit to getting the credentialing, getting the training? Uh, absolutely. Do young people have a reason uh, to try and better themselves. Should we in any way scold them, which quite frankly I did unintentionally about trying to better themselves? No, that's totally inappropriate. Is a dopamine hit good? Yeah, just keep in mind a dopamine hit is a dopamine hit and that uh, I love to gamble. I go to Vegas and I no joke put on a kilt in a canary yellow blazer and I gamble, I take a thousand bucks and I expect to lose it all, and it's worth it in its consumption. Uh, I think a bunch of young people are just going to get smoked here, uh, and it's already happening around some of these stocks. Stocks go up for a few reasons. One, uh, the fundamentals change, or two, there's a some sort of technical reason, some sort of momentum play, uh, short squeeze. In this case, we saw, as Aswath described it, a, a uh, crowd squeeze. Then there's some sort of coordinated attack. This is nothing that hedge funds or short funds haven't done for a long time where they try and figure out a way to surround a company and create a ton of negative or positive energy around it. And if you don't believe the narrative thing or kind of momentum, look at every Wall Street bank that has magically decided that every uh, the Tesla stock is, uh, their price target for it is magically 20% of, where, of wherever it is at that given moment. And then the new one here is that it's a movement or it's part of a movement. And I was thinking about Tesla. Tesla is sort of a movement, right? And this is the argument for why maybe this movement has more sustainability or more staying power or more long-term sustenance. And that is, uh, and I was very much bearish on Tesla. Tesla was able to attract a lot of people who are passionate about the climate, the company, the product. It's a great product. Elon Musk himself, who is arguably, and I think legitimately, has been called the Edison of our generation, and that passion that translated into a very healthy, if you will, stock price, gave them access to cheap capital to pull the future forward. So I think, who knows, maybe there's a narrative that GameStop could issue stock when it's at a, it's at a, a fully valued level, so to speak, 
and go build their future and pull it forward. The problem is I don't see the narrative has any link to the underlying fundamentals here. Uh, You just don't hear the term GameStop or the business in this narrative. And the narrative has evolved or has emerged as it's time to go after, quote unquote, the establishment. And I think on a macro level, there is legitimate rage here. Absolutely legitimate rage. Billionaires had $1.9 trillion in wealth in 2010. Now it's $4 trillion. The percentage of wealth that people under the age of 40 had in 2000, uh, excuse me, in 1989 was 19%. Now it's 9%. I even think the stimulus is essentially the great grift transferring wealth from young people to old people. It seems like everything we do in our economy is to try and keep asset prices high. Who owns assets? Older people. Who is in their current income earning years? Uh, young people. Of course, we tax current income higher. We've exploded the cost of education. And what do you know? Young people are fed up. Uh, the question is, what is the movement you're buying into? And I think movements are worth buying into. I think there's righteous movements. I think the Black Lives Matter the civil rights movement, equal rights for women. These are all powerful, righteous movements. Uh, But when you send 100 bucks to Bernie Sanders, you send 100 bucks to Bernie Sanders and you should expect it to go towards the movement, if you will. You don't expect 110 bucks back. And my fear around this is that the people who are waving the banner of a movement are oftentimes maybe not as committed to the movement as as they are their own financial well-being and using the movement as a call sign to try and get other people to come in behind them. And I think this is an age old uh, construct that is unhealthy, if you will, and or let me put it this way, you wanna know, you wanna be very suspect of who exactly is calling for the movement and what are their intentions. And I think we're gonna find that, well, a lot of people, they think they stuck it to the man, they were actually the man's stick here. And when I think about who's really gonna make billions of dollars here, uh, I think it's one, the people who own Reddit. I think Reddit has grown dramatically in value as a, a new medium of power. And to a certain extent, Wall Street Bets has become arguably the largest hedge fund in the world, which is an interesting way of looking at it. But what I want to know is who are the general partners? Who are the people in charge here who are benefiting? And who are the investors? And what are the general partners telling the limited partners? I just don't un- I don't understand who is actually calling this a movement and what their what their motives are. And then you think about this medium has gained so much power, uh, Reddit. And I think Reddit has done their best at their thread of pretty narrow needle here. Uh, Reddit is owned by, uh, uh, I think, several investors, including the um, family that owns Condé Nast or Advanced Publications. I think Robinhood probably gained $10 billion in value over the last week. Supposedly, a couple million new accounts were signed up just this week alone. There was a conspiracy theory that the people clearing their trades, the people financing their margin was a hedge fund that had an investment in the hedge fund that was getting killed through shorts and that the hedge fund uh, that was financing Robinhood basically pulled their financing such that they could stop selling stock to people driving the stock up and hurting the fund that this the financier of Robinhood also had an investment in. I don't buy that conspiracy. I don't think it's true. I think they simply got caught in a capital crunch because the people who uh, lend the money for margin or pair their trades did some analysis and said, okay, 50% of your account holders own one stock and the stock is very volatile and we need greater capital reserves. And I think in about 48 hours, Robinhood was able to solve that problem and begin trading in those stocks again. So I think Robinhood has dramatically escalated in value, probably 10, maybe even $20 billion in value. 
Uh, and by the way, I've been critical of, of Robinhood. I think any platform that tries to keep your attention such that they can mine your data and then sell that to a third party usually leads to bad places, i.e. Facebook and now Robinhood. Uh, but look at who's getting rich as Robinhood explodes in value. Obviously, those are founders, but the biggest shareholders are Andreessen Horowitz or New Enterprise Associates, uh, NEA or Sequoia Capital. So. It might be frustrating, but who are you really sticking it to? And I wonder who ends up, you know, as as Othwa said, to what end? Like, okay, you storm the castle, you own the castle, you've you've hung Melvin Capital or the Melville Capital. Now what? And does the guy or gal next to you are they so committed to the movement that when they see people starting to exit out through the door and be clear, a stampede through the door can absolutely be. Um, <laughs> a pretty chaotic stampede out the door. Are they going to sneak out in the middle of the night and leave you with your movement and a great deal of capital destruction? I know that over the course of my life, where I have lost money has been around trading. And where I have made money is trying to find a good company and then ignoring it. Uh, anyways, Whitney will say more about this, but this is an unfolding conversation I do believe that it doesn't end well for a lot of investors, a lot of first-time investors. Hopefully, it inspires a lot of learning. Hopefully, it inspires a lot of people who get excited about the markets and maybe you know, find traction in a career in the markets, or at a minimum, hopefully, they're just enjoying it. And who knows, maybe some will make some money. But my sense is there's going to be enormous capital destruction under the auspices of a quote-unquote uh, movement. Okay. And other news, Apple and Facebook are fighting over privacy. That's a shocker. Essentially, Mark Zuckerberg isn't a fan of the new privacy features iOS 14 is bringing this spring. Apple iOS 14 will give users more control over their data and offer more transparency. Facebook believes this will undermine the ability of small businesses to reach their audiences through targeted ads. Last week during Facebook's earnings call, Zuckerberg said that the company increasingly sees Apple as one of its biggest competitors, specifically citing the fact that iMessage is a key linchpin of Apple's ecosystem. The day after Facebook's earnings call, Tim Cook leveraged something I referred to or a construct called laddering as a means of depositioning your competition. I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, but during a virtual computers privacy and data protection conference, Cook gave a keynote speech stating that, open quote, an interconnected ecosystem of companies and data brokers, of purveyors of fake news and peddlers of division, of trackers and hucksters just looking to make a quick buck, he goes on to say. And it has never been so clear how it degrades our fundamental right to privacy first and our social fabric by consequence. Cook did not address Facebook in the speech. He didn't mention them by name. But you get the sense that he's referring to companies that profit off rage, for example, Facebook and also um, Twitter. So why is this laddering? Laddering is an attempt to deposition a competitor by highlighting one of your strengths, which just happens to be your competitor's weakness. You can cast yourself in a positive light while at the same time casting a negative light on your competitor. So for example, for example, in politics, when you begin playing up your own viewpoint on gun rights, what you're really trying to do is highlight the other person's um, track record on gun control, if you think that's going to be a winning issue. Basically, uh, brands don't do it as much as political parties, but every time someone brings up a point, you not only bring it up, bringing up in terms of say, hey, look at me, but you're saying, hey, now focus on this specific issue relative to my competitors. 
an example of how this changes strategy. If they went to Apple, if they went to that spaceship headquarters and said, all right, what attribute do you really want to lead with in your communications and your branding and your messaging from your CEO, who's kind of become the, the most important advertisement uh, in a world where we personify companies, I don't think people would have said privacy. I think that people, if they'd done a survey of their key managers, they would have said, well, let's talk about, it's about design. It's about elegance. It's about being the person you want to be. It's about thinking different. They wouldn't have said privacy. But really, Apple's messaging over the last 24 months, specifically from Tim Cook, has been around privacy. Why? Why? His biggest competitors, Google and Facebook, just can't go there. They just can't go there. So when you're laddering a company, you want to go, we're this, they're this, and you want to zero in on the attribute where that clears three hurdles. One, are we truly differentiated on this issue? Yes, yes. Apple is truly differentiated. They pull 200 data points a day from your phone. Android devices pull 1,200. Facebook is obviously in the business of pulling thousands of data points from your action. Two, two, is it relevant? Do people care? It appears that privacy is becoming more and more relevant. I've always felt that privacy was sort of overrated, that there was consumer dissonance, that people wanted their privacy violated as long as there was utility or a coupon at the end. But it does appear to be a more and more relevant issue. And then finally, finally, is it sustainable? Let's assume you are truly different on this attribute. Let's assume it's important to the end stakeholder or consumer. Then how do you own it? Can you own it? Well, in this instance, Apple can because their business model, their business model is not as much violating your privacy. It's selling you apps or selling you an expensive phone, uh, charging you $1,200 for $550 of chipsets and sensors, whereas everybody else, or specifically Facebook and Google, are in the business of basically giving you the product for free, whether it's a social network or an Android phone, and then pulling that data and using it for an ad model. So, so what's going on here? Is this a case that Facebook is in fact a menace deploying algorithms of amplification that divide our society? Or, or is Tim Cook just talking his own book in that he would like the ad model to go away such that more apps had to charge? And by the way, who benefits from that? The app store, because they can't charge companies for the advertising revenue they generate, but they can charge them for charging for apps. Is this just him talking his book or is Facebook a menace? The answer is yes. Stay with us. We'll be right back for our conversation with Whitney Tilson. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back. Here's our conversation with Whitney Tilson. 
So, Whitney, I just don't know what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I can't think of anything. Um, I know, I know, uh, Wall Street bets and GameStop, your turn. Yeah, well, uh, look, I think what's happened with GameStop and, you know, depending on how you count it, maybe one to two dozen other stocks, you know, AMC and BlackBerry and Express and uh, a few others, is sort of a classic short squeeze. And it's sort of comical seeing all these Redditors thinking they've, you know, discovered the wheel here or something. But, you know, anyone who's been around a while saw, uh, you know, short squeezes going back to the 1950s, like Resorts International, uh, Piggly Wiggly, the mother of all short squeezes was Volkswagen. Uh, I, I've seen this uh, so many times and I always know how it ends. Uh, you know, uh, naive individual investors get sucked in and then they just get incinerated. Uh, I, I, I called the top last Wednesday and I named two dozen stocks and I said, do not buy these stocks. And if you're lucky enough to own any of them, get out immediately and count yourself lucky. Uh, in three plus trading days since then, the average uh, of those stocks is down 25%, you know, led by GameStop down 66% as we're recording this right now in just over three trading days. Um, so, and I, and I know it's not the professionals who got incinerated from 480, you know, down to hundred bucks on GameStop and have lost $16 billion. Um, it's individual investors who've, uh, who got sucked into Robinhood, got sucked into the Reddit chat rooms. Um, and it just breaks my heart, uh, because these are people who probably cannot afford, uh, these losses, you know, Gabe Plotkin made $400 million or more last year running Melbourne capital. You know his hedge fund needed a bailout, but he's not—he's not struggling to pay his bills. Let me tell you. And what do you think of the notion that okay, I can't tell you—I've heard the term "okay boomer" about seven thousand times in the last forty-eight hours, based on my comments, which it's admittedly some of, some of them were pretty tone deaf. But what do you think of the notion that okay, you know, we got ours; it's time for them to get theirs, and if they want to come into a stock. You know, what do you think of the notion that this is this is a movement, if you will? I, I'm just not buying it. Um, like I said, these folks think they've discovered the wheel and they haven't. Uh, this is just a plain old speculative bubble. Um, and uh, the fact that it's um, it's now turbocharged with social media and with the Reddit message boards and all means it sort of happened faster, happened more violently. And you know, there's no doubt, um, and there are absolute genuine grievances that people have sort of about the financial system and about how the banks were all bailed out, but average Americans weren't bailed out back in 08, for example, in early 09. Um, they are legitimate grievances, but uh, engaging in a speculative stock market bubble in a, in a couple dozen stocks that then just incinerates everybody uh, uh, is, is not the way to express uh, th th those grievances. Who do you think is, who do you think, do you have any thoughts on who is likely behind this? Is it hedge funds or is it just individual investors who legitimately think this is a movement against uh, some of that justifiable inter intergenerational rage based on what you've seen before with kind of companies that are shorted? And by the way, hedge funds have been doing this forever. It just feels like these guys have done a better job of it. But do you think there's something bigger here that, that some of the, who, who, who's your sense for who the actors are here? Yeah, it's it's really hard to know, and I'll be very curious. I think it's worth, you know. I hope it, I'm not sure, honestly, that the SEC should spend a lot of time here. I'm not convinced, you know, there's anyone who's co committed fraud here. 
um, you know, people talking their book and getting hyped up on the message boards. Um, I'm not sure that needs to be regulated. Um, I think the way Robinhood, um, you've talked, I completely agree with your take on this, where they've turned investing and they've gamified it using these psychological tricks uh, um, and so forth to, to encourage people to day trade as much as possible and particularly to use options, which, you know, another interesting statistic, this may be a little dated, but I read somewhere, you know, 80% of options expire worthless. I mean, it's just, it's just such a quick way to incinerate your capital. And so I suspect, you know, this started as best I can tell the GameStop in particular. Uh, I know Mike Burry personally, Uh, he did some good analysis. The other two hedge funds that got in, one of whom's on the board, did good analysis, saw an undervalued turnaround situation. Uh, uh, the guy from Chewy who got in, were there. The board, yeah. um, all completely legitimate, good analysis. And, you know, there it, it was a very interesting turnaround play that sort of was on my radar screen, should have done more work on it, obviously. Um, but then, you know, so that maybe got the stock from $4 to $10 or something. But then it sort of got some momentum. It got picked up on the message boards. Uh, and then, you know, it, the, the stock price momentum in and of itself create, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy, prophecy. The higher it went, the more people it attracted, the more chatter. Then, you know, CNBC starts covering it 24-7 and draws more people in. Um, and uh, look, you saw it, um, you've seen it a couple times with Bitcoin. Uh, you saw it with the pot stocks back in September 17. Remember when Tilray hit 300? Mm-hmm. Um, GameStop hitting 480 intraday. Um, you saw it on the 3D printing stocks maybe six, seven years ago mm-hmm. when, you know, when uh, 3D systems went from 10 to over 100. And what was the top when they had Will I Am? Um, the the musician, they appointed him chief creative officer. And I sent an hour and, around an email to all of my readers saying, okay, this is the, this is the warning flag. This is the sure sign mm-hmm. of a top. And sure enough, the stock was down 90% within six months. So let's move away from the the kind of the, the Wall Street bad stocks. Do you think, do you see any similar signs or canaries in the coal mine around the market more generally? Yeah, well, here's what's interesting. I mean, keep in mind these 25 stocks I identified, my what I call my short squeeze bubble basket, um, that are down 25% in three plus days. Um, they have a combined market cap of $150 billion. Um, for perspective, Tesla alone is approaching $800 billion. Um, and so the market is clearly fully valued, um, but I do not think we are in an overall stock market bubble. Um, the best analogy I can give to the way I'm feeling now is the late 90s when you had the tech stock blow off. But um, what I'm seeing here in this little pocket of this short squeeze bubble basket is not the um, the final stage of an overall market blow off. In, in, in fact, it reminds me of the globe.com, which was one of the early dot com stocks that went public in 1998 in late 98. And at the time when it went up 606% on its IPO day was Mm -hmm. the uh, highest performing IPO in history at that time. And imagine back then if somebody had said, oh, this is a sure sign of a market top, this kind of foolishness, because of course that company later ended up collapsing and going out of business entirely. But it turned out it was indicative of a much bigger the entire internet bubble, which then played out over the next 16 months. So we were still 16 months away 
from a, a, a blow off top. And there was a, still a melt up to come among tech and internet stocks. So um, given the unprecedented both fiscal and monetary stimulus uh, coming from the government, um, we're going to see some of the greatest economic growth numbers in the history of the world, not just here in the U.S., but across the entire world. Because look at what we're comping against last year when the entire world shut down in February and March and April, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to you're going to have extraordinary year-over-year uh, -year economic growth numbers combined with unprecedented fiscal and monetary um, uh, stimulus. Uh, again, not just in the U.S. but across the world. And then you've got just these crazy animal spirits that we've seen in this, you know, mo manifest most recently in this tech stock bubble, uh, a short squeeze bubble basket, I call it. So, you know, I, I don't like making short term calls. Uh, um, I have a colleague uh, who, who's much better at it than I am, but I think he's probably right that there's still, you know, across the market, but particularly sort of in the tech space. Uh, uh, there still there still may well be a melt up to come. So the way we've been playing it is is where we've seen real blow offs in stocks where they become really disconnected uh, from our estimate of intrinsic value. We've been telling our subscribers to take profits, but we're not issuing just a general this is a top you know go to cash kind of call. Um, I, I have a feeling we're probably six to twelve months away from that. Yeah, it reminds me again, um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it r rhymes. The economists called the top of the dot-com implosion perfectly. They even described how it would happen, but they called it in 1997. And when when guys like, I'll say you, you're a much more sophisticated investor than me, but when generally the quote-unquote experts say we're out of top, that usually means it's going to run another 30%, or at least historically. And then about the time that everybody says, well, maybe we're in a new economic paradigm. Remember those articles in 99 sure. in the Wall Street Journal saying that this is potentially the internet has unlocked a new economic paradigm? When sort of people could just sort of throw in the towel and say, maybe we're in a new model, maybe the traditional- Right. This time is different. The four most dangerous words in investing. Look out below, right? That's when yeah. things- But it, it, there's been some interesting, uh, an economist out of Yale had a great article in the New York Times that it's going to be the roaring 20s. You look at the stimulus, you look at the prospect of a vaccination, and you look at the pent-up demand emotionally of people who just want to get out there and spend money, who go to Disneyland again, start having dinner- with their partners at you know the Red Lobster or wherever, it's hard to imagine the economy isn't going to, like you said, lap some incredible, some incredible numbers. Talk a little bit about uh, what you refer to as TAS, transportation as a service. Yeah, um, it's a concept here um, that basically people, a lot fewer people, will own cars. And they will simply have an app on their phone, um, like an Uber or Lyft, except the except these will be electric vehicles in all likelihood, but most importantly, autonomous vehicles. And I think most people are sort of thinking this is maybe 10 years in the future. And I think it's almost it's here now. Um, it's already happening in Phoenix, for example, where Google, through their Waymo division, um, uh, there are people in Phoenix right now um, that it, it's a geofenced area, so it's not full level five autonomy. It's called it's what's called level four. Um, but right now, um, on you know, there are ten or twelve thousand people. I think uh, Google hasn't revealed the details. Um, they just pull open their uh, open up their phone. And they say, "I'd like a car." One pulls up, um, and sometimes there's a safety driver sitting in the car, but oftentimes not. Um, 
And I have a friend in Phoenix who already tells me he's he's noticing that car the most families you know living in suburbia uh, you know in Phoenix would generally have two cars, and those families now find they only need one. Uh, it it just has enormous implications if this spreads as rapidly and as widely as I think it does. Um, you know, ranging the whole the whole parking uh, the, the the amount of space and the industry of parking lots largely disappears. Um, you know, con- uh, cities like New York City that collect five hundred million dollars a year in parking tickets and or parking meters. Um, you know, how are cities going to replace that revenue? You know, if you think about it, the concept transportation as a service is mm-hmm. is drawn from software as a service, where people instead of owning something up front, instead sort of uh, do it on a pay-as-you-go basis. So, you know, Elon Musk has talked about this, turning, uh, you know, uh, uh, Teslas into a fleet of robo-taxis. Um, as usual, he was years too aggressive in his, in his predicted timing. He was predicting that it was going to be already have happened by now and that the average Tesla owner would have an asset that is now worth four times what he or she paid for it as a result of being able to have their car when they're not using it out there um, providing transportation as a service. Um, his timing was completely wrong, but I actually think uh, the vision is completely right. So we came out with this about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we named five stocks. Um, what are those five, Whitney? Um, uh, I can't reveal all of them because they're for our subscribers, but we started with just by Google and you're getting Waymo as part of that. And we don't think you're paying for it. Um, so you know that was the easiest, safest one. Uh, the second most best known stock would be NVIDIA, which is making the chips. Which mm-hmm. you know, as a value investor, I don't know. The stock was trading fifty times earnings at the time, or something. But lo and behold, it's doubled. Uh, and then you know, we we should have, of course, just recommended Tesla, uh, but we thought that was just sort of too obvious and too much of a cliche. But we recommended some smaller companies that make um, the you know the picks and shovels for the miners. You know, that make some of the technology uh, that that makes autonomous driving possible. So just to try and take the other side of um, how this investment strategy doesn't always end in tears, you look at Tesla, and I, I, I thought I said in front of 3,000 people at South by Southwest, I don't know, two years ago, that Tesla was overvalued at 50 bucks a share. I think it's at 850. And the vision, uh, if you will, not only the narrative, people saw it as a movement. I think they more saw it as a movement around energy or climate change than a movement around intergenerational rage or sticking it to the man, if, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I would argue there was probably more, more, the movement was more attached to the fundamentals of the company or the prospects of the company. But you had the same bots, you had the same aggressive people coming after you, you had the same passion for the stock going up. And irrational exuberance, for for lack of a better term, that provided the company with enough cheap capital to pull the future forward and realize that vision. And so, I, I, I Melvin Capital lost three billion, I think, in shorts, or there's been three billion in shorts. Excuse me, shorts have lost about three billion dollars in this. I won't even call it a, a short squeeze, but a crowd squeeze. Uh, shorts have lost seven billion in Tesla. Is there is there no, an argument? They lost seventy billion or more. It's uh, I don't know what time period you're talking about, but oh, it would be that much. Oh wait, somebody oh, told me look, it has an 800 billion dollar market cap, and it had a twenty percent short interest um, during most of the run up. So you know, um, it's, so call uh, it even more. So, but wasn't the original gangster here Tesla? And is Tesla 
a case study in how this actually can be a sustainable investment strategy? I have so many thoughts and swirling emotions on Tesla, but I will I will say this is a classic case of you don't have to be a hero. Yeah. I, I know so many short sellers who just threw themselves onto the fire and I begged them not to because I was short Tesla from seven, this was split adjusted. So it was like 35 to 205, but there's been a five for one split in there. Um, so, you know, call it uh, seven to uh, 40 or something like that back in 2013. Now, fortunately, I was offsetting it with being long Netflix. Um, both stocks were owned by the same people and there was a lot of excitement. So to some extent, it was a little bit of a pair trade. That's the best excuse I can get for being dumb enough to be short Tesla. Um, and ever since I, I finally realized, hey, Tesla's a very open-ended situation. Um, my cousin, who's a Stanford engineer out there, mm -hmm. introduced me to two of his Stanford engineer friends who were working at Tesla. This is back in 2013, who told me, uh, quote, there is nothing Elon Musk and J.B. Straubel, who is the, the, his right-hand man in charge of the engineering team, there is nothing Elon Musk and J.B. Straubel can't do. And I was smart enough to realize, uh oh, I want to get out of this short. I unfortunately was not smart enough to realize, gee, I might want to be long this, right? Shame on me. Um, you know, my analyst uh, was an early Tesla owner. Um, he bought the stock back at about the time I was shorting it. He has made over a hundred times his money just finding, and you only have to do that once in a career to retire, basically, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and and getting back to sort of the bigger, you know, what should you do as an investor is, um, is you know, yes, have some things like Berkshire Hathaway that's probably 20% undervalued in your portfolio. It's not exciting, but, you know, that's like the foundation. But if you want to put, um, try and find the next Tesla, the next Netflix, companies that are really sort of breaking rules or whatever and and owning them for a long period of time like i owned uh i owned five million dollars of netflix at seven dollars and change per share uh seven years ago and i thought i was so clever you know i made seven times my money every time it doubled i sold it doubled i sold it doubled i sold and then i finally exited up seven times the stock has since then gone up 10 times so it's been a 70 bagger um, I, I went back um, and did an analysis of, you know, I owned Apple at $1.42 a share, split adjusted um, it, 20 years ago. I owned Amazon at $48 a share. Uh, I don't even want to tell you the prices at which I owned McDonald's, Home Depot, et cetera. But every time, you know, I was sort of trading. And like you said, every uh, my experience certainly mirrors the research that you have cited correctly, which is, the more trading you do, uh, the lower your returns are going to be. Um, and certainly any kind of rapid day trading, and certainly you layer in options in there. So, you know, I've, I've actually, you know, sadly, it took me 20 years to figure this out. So I hope some of your listeners will listen to what you're saying and to what I'm saying, which is, you know, try and find a handful, uh, build a portfolio of, let's say, a dozen stocks uh, companies you're interested in that you know well, that you think are high quality, um, that have a bright future ahead of them, maybe mix in a few smaller ones, uh, maybe a little riskier, but have a foundation of some what I call stalwarts, you know, and then and then try and forget about it. Go about your life and and build friendships and uh, focus on your uh, on making sure your marriage is healthy and and that you're in good physical shape uh you know that you're exercising properly that you're getting enough sleep every night uh you know i, I used to i've become a total um, ever since seeing matthew walker's ted talk um you know he's done some innovative research on sleep 
you know, I now try to get eight to nine hours of sleep. Whereas, you know, I used to deliberately set my alarm to get less than seven hours because I was so busy, had so much work to do. Um, so your most precious commodity is, is, is your time and how you okay. allocate it. So I'll just wrap up this sort of soliloquy by saying, I completely agree with you is, is for the vast majority of people, like 99.9% .9 of people, it is a terrible, terrible misallocation of time, uh, to spend there, you know, looking at your, uh, your Robinhood app and day trading stocks. So uh, when you look at, uh, uh, where do you see what set? Let's not talk. We, you talked about the market. Where do you see, relative to the market, the most? Uh, who do you th what sectors do you think are the most undervalued or overvalued? Just speak specifically to sectors. Um, I do not see anything that's really screaming at me that's just really cheap and that I, I, I'm wading in and buying. Um, it's it's just sort of fully valued across the board. Um, but that does not mean overvalued. When I look at the you know 20 largest stocks in the S&P 500, I see a collection of amazing businesses trading at, at sort of moderately high multiples. But in light of where interest rates are and the stimulus and so forth, um, you know I'd say fully valued, but not overvalued. With the possible exception of the fifth largest company in, in the U.S. stock market right now, Tesla. Which you know could easily. Uh, I'm not predicting it, and I've been saying for years. I don't think it's a good long. I don't think it's a good short. Just stay away from it on the short side. Um, but you know that stock could fall 50% or more and still be wildly overvalued by any metric, right? Whereas I would not characterize any of the other stocks in the top 20 the same way. So um, you know, look, I, I I always tell people I've I've called Berkshire Hathaway America's number one retirement stock for years. Uh, it's probably 20% undervalued. It's compounding its value in high single digits, maybe 10%. So that's uh, it. It has if you look at how it's done since the bottom in March um, of 2009. So you now got almost a dozen years. It's basically almost exactly tracked the S&P 500, but I would argue with a lot less risk. Um, you know, it's had a huge pile of cash and it's very conservatively financed and run and so forth. So I like that a little better than the S&P 500 index. And by the way, I've got a big chunk uh, of my retirement savings and I manage my parents' retirement money. A big chunk of it's just in the S&P 500. Just go buy SPY and forget about it. That's my single biggest position by far. Um, then, uh, then you know, I'd recommend Berkshire Hathaway, and that 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 I would put fifty to eighty percent of your money in in something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, where where might I be looking to take a little more risk? Um, I still like Alphabet. I think it's the sort of the cheapest of the big cap tech stocks. Um, you know, it's it's got some headwinds here and there, but it's still just an amazing growth machine. You know, Apple. Revenues. Apple is struggling to grow its revenues. You know, at very low single digits. It's almost all of its earnings per share growth uh, in the last five years has just come from huge share repurchases. Um, I think Google's earlier on the growth curve. Um, it's quite a bit smaller. It's growing. You know, pushing twenty percent compounded top line. Uh, plenty of room to grow margins, and they still they've got a big pile of cash, and they haven't even begun the share repurchase game. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been dead wrong on this for the last couple of years, but I, I prefer Google slash Alphabet over Apple for sure. Uh, so, you know, throw in Twitter, uh, something with a little more excitement, um, and you know, I think you know, right there, uh, you know, you can sort of forget about it. And by the way, I'm sitting on thirty percent cash right now. Um, 
when the market crashed um, last March, mm-hmm. I was sitting on a lot of cash from when I had shut down my hedge fund in late 2017. Uh, I poured money in and I went from sort of 15% invested to 85% invested over the course of four weeks. Mm-hmm. Then the market rallied really sharply. Just being the value guy that I am, I should have just held, of course, given what the market's done since then. But I, I sold a little bit, trimmed a little bit. And today, I'm actually really quite happy being 70% invested, 30% cash. And I have a feeling, you know, sometime in the next year or two, there's going to be another 30% pullback in the market. And I'm going to have some dry powder to put to work. So one of the good things that ideally will come out of this Wall Street bets or this Reddit movement is that it'll inspire a lot of people, they'll think, you know, I really am uh, interested in the markets and I want to do this for a living. And you're a hedge fund manager. You've been in the markets your entire career. What advice do you have for someone who's thinking about this as a career in terms of training, best way to, to build the skill set required to do this for a living? Yeah, um, I would characterize it um, similar to if you wanted to be a brain surgeon or a fighter pilot, for example, or a professor, um, which is you should first go get the absolute best education you have. And I'm I'm parroting, of course, some of your uh, advice, which is get credentialed. Um, and then move to a city. And unlike a, a big city where for, for most careers, I actually think you're probably best off being in New York City, you know, maybe a couple other cities, but really the center of the universe would be New York City, maybe London, hard to see, tell what's going to happen with Brexit there. Um, and then get into a training program, just like doctors and fighter pilots, you know, they go to school and they develop the foundation. Then they get very specialized training that involves an apprenticeship. You need to find someone who is more advanced in their career, who's where you want to be someday, and then persuade them to invest the time and energy to train you. Um, I do, if you can get into a top three MBA program or a top five MBA program, um, that's probably worth taking two years off. Um, But then you ultimately, you need to do at least five years, if not 10 years of apprenticeship under a master and really learn not just the investing side, but particularly if you want to go out and start your own fund, you need to learn the entrepreneurial side. Um, And this is where I didn't know what I didn't know when I just hung out my shingle as the world's smallest smallest hedge fund with having never worked in the industry back on January 1st of 1999. And I had a million dollars under management. And, um, you know, I made a real good go of it, but because I hadn't had the training and experience, uh, I made a bunch of investing mistakes, but worse yet, I made business mistakes. I didn't know how to build a business because I had never worked in this kind of business. So most importantly, after you've gotten credentialed and gotten the basic training, go um, uh, find yourself a great apprenticeship um, for five or 10 years and really learn the ins and outs and the inside scoop of the, of the business. Um, and only then do you consider starting your own fund. And by the way, the answer for 90 plus percent of people is, is you should never start your own fund. You should just be a, a senior analyst at a bigger fund or at a bigger firm, um, you know, Sanford Bernstein or something like that, um, and build a great career coming up with three great stock ideas a year. Um, and that is worth millions and millions of dollars to uh, a big firm. Um, and you don't need the brain damage of going out and trying to start your own firm. It's like if you're a great chef, you should, all great chefs should not 
run out and start their own restaurants. Um, mm -hmm. Most great chefs should work for somebody else's restaurant because then they can focus on what they love and what they're uniquely good at. Whitney Tilson is the founder and CEO of Empire Financial Research, as well as the editor of Empire Investment Report and Empire Stock Investor. He's also the author of two books, The Art of Value Investing, How the World's Best Investors Beat the Market, and More Mortgage Meltdown, Six Ways to Profit in These Bad Times. He was a contributing author to Poor Charlie's Almanac, the definitive book on Berkshire Hathaway Vice Chairman Charlie Munger. He joins us from his home in New York. Is that right? Are you in Manhattan yes. right now? Buddy? Yep, Upper East Side. I'm Cyclone. Stay, stay safe, my brother. Stay safe. Thanks for being with us, Whitney. Thank you, Scott. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. It's time for Office Hours, the part of the show where we answer your questions about the business world, big tech, higher education, and whatever else is on your mind. If you'd like to submit a question, please email a voice recording to officehours at section4.com. Question number one. Hi, Prof G. I'm Ivo, final year high school student from Warsaw, Poland. Recently, you have shared a prediction that Apple will buy Peloton. I'm curious why it has to be a purchase of a whole company rather than product partnership in which Apple has experienced Jimmy Cap with Nike or Hermes. Looking forward to hearing your opinion and thank you in advance. Iwo from Warsaw, thanks so much. I love Warsaw, I love Eastern Europe. I love the beer, I love the architecture, I love the vibe, the sense of enthusiasm of kind of, I don't know, these countries, I guess it's a little late to say the country's coming online, but I love Poland. Anyway, not what you asked about. So you're right, Apple doesn't necessarily need to buy the company, typically Apple, doesn't want to be a venture capitalist. So if they were going to do an investment, it's usually to kind of kick the tires or sometimes pee on the hydrant and make sure someone else doesn't buy it. Oftentimes companies will invest in a company and in that investment or as a function of that investment, they'll they'll ask for a term called a rofer or a right of first refusal, meaning they want to make sure that if anybody else comes in and buys potentially a strategic asset, they have the opportunity to come in and buy it themselves. So for example, Richemont, made an investment in Net-A-Porte, this online purveyor or retailer of luxury items, because they wanted to get to know it, they wanted to be on the board, and they wanted to make sure that nobody else bought it. And then I believe it was Hearst came in and put in an offer for it, which effectively forces the hand of Richemont. Richemont says, we don't want to lose it. We don't want a media company to have this asset. And boom, they go ahead and buy it. Rofers are, if you will, tempting as an entrepreneur to give away in exchange for an investment. But keep in mind, you're effectively just creating a stocking horse or other buyers become a stocking horse for you to sell to that player and they limit upside value. So if you're an entrepreneur and you're taking an investment, try and avoid the rofer. It sounds easy and cheap at the time, but it, 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 the net effect of it is it limits your upside. Anyways, uh, I got off on a bit of a tangent there. The market capitalization for Peloton is $43 billion. So let's assume that Apple would have to pay 50 or $55 billion. I don't know if Peloton is worth that, but it's probably worth that to Apple as Apple would get another 30, 40, 50 minutes 
of attention from who I think are the most influential people in the world. Think about the people riding a Peloton. It's everybody from Joe Biden to Oprah. And so the having these people on iOS or what ultimately would be iOS, connected fitness, uh, Apple has incredible supply chain. So in sum, is is Peloton worth 50 billion? Probably not, but is it worth two or two and a half percent dilution to Apple? Absolutely. It reminds me, it reminds me of when Jet.com was trading at a valuation of two billion and got purchased by Walmart for three billion. And I said, there's no way this thing is worth three billion. It was burning 50 million a month. It was basically a business invented to incinerate cash. What I got wrong though was it was worth more than three billion to Walmart. Was it worth three billion? No. But was it worth more than $3 billion to the biggest retailer in the world who had about $150 or $200 billion market cap at the time and whose e-commerce growth was high single digits? That was Walmart. They weren't growing their e-commerce very strong. And by making this $3 billion acquisition, they immediately screamed into the double digits. They supercharged their growth, even if just for four quarters to lap really weak numbers. Yeah, it was worth more than $3 billion to Walmart. So, so. Let's circle back to your question. Yeah, they could do a partnership. I'm not sure they want to do that, though. I think they want to do their own thing in connected fitness. So I don't see partnering here. I see maybe an investment with a rofer, which Peloton probably wouldn't do. I see Peloton stock, if it in fact does decline, uh, and I'm not sure why it would, but I've, I've thought this company was very fully valued for a long time. But if it does in fact decline, I think Apple swoops in and buys Peloton. Thank you for the question. Next question. Hey, Prof. I'm Arvind from Seattle. I don't work for Amazon though, but the company I work for has done well for itself in the last couple of years. So currently I'm eligible to be an accredited investor. So uh, I read a book on angel investing by someone I don't think you're a fan of, uh, but I'm thinking of investing in startups through a syndicate or seed invest in other places. What are your thoughts on it? Do you think it's a good idea or it is something like SPAC and others that you're not into? In general, what would you invest in 2021 if you were in your late 20s and you are an accredited investor? Thanks very much, Arvind. So uh, I look at angel investing as part investing, part consumption. Angel investors are usually people who have had a very successful career, want to learn more about a sector. They also want to make money. But I find that angel investing, the very beginning, kind of that seed stage, if you will, is a very dangerous part of the capital structure. Why? Because unless they sit on a fund and can take advantage of pro rata investment rights, if the company does, in fact, strike lightning and take off, that if you're an angel investor, you typically don't have a ton of strength in the cap table. You're sometimes paired back. Uh, a bigger VC comes in, pushes you out. But if you have pro rata rights, can you even exercise those pro rata rights? Do you sit on that kind of capital? And I think the early part of company formation is just fraught with risk. I think there's just so many risks to going from A to D. So if you're going to invest, if you want to be an angel investor, I would suggest that you spread a lot of money around. I think it is very difficult to pick which star is going to be a shooting star. There's just so much magic and alchemy and good luck uh, and great execution that usually involves a pivot at some point to go from kind of le letters A to D. So I find that on a risk-adjusted basis, angel investing is really, uh, really difficult. Having said that, I think it's rewarding. I think it's it's good for the economy to be involved. I think you can add a lot of value if you think of yourself as someone who's hands-on and can make introductions or advise them. I think it's rewarding to mentor 
uh, young people. So I've done some angel investing, but I'm clear that it is, I have lower return expectations and maybe I shouldn't, but I do have lower return expectations because I think of it as being uh, somewhat, somewhat consumption, if you will. Uh, in terms of your question around if you're an accredited investor in your late 20s, I would uh, just invest in public stocks that you like. I've never invested in bonds. I invested in private companies as I got older and had access to sort of later stage private companies that I knew were doing really well. Um, some of that though, but to be clear, a lot of that is because I've reached a point where I have uh, good contacts and because of the work I do, I get a lot of opportunities and you might not have those opportunities. I would suggest just a diversified portfolio of index funds, low cost, don't trade them. We've been talking a lot about this. And then for fun, if you find companies that you're passionate about, if you want to put some rocket fuel or specific companies, uh, dip your toe in there. Very difficult to time the market, but again, back to what Warren Buffett said that we keep talking about, uh, you want to be time in the market. But the fact that you're in your late 20s and you're thinking this way means that I don't know if you're going to get rich fast, but I'm pretty sure you're going to get rich slowly. But the great thing about time is it goes really fast, my friend. Thanks for the call. Thanks for the question. Thank you, Arvin. Next question. Greetings, Prof G from the University of Montana in Missoula, Montana. My name is Mike Braun, strategy professor at our College of Business. My MBA students and I just kicked off our spring course on corporate turnarounds. And as part of the class, we analyze an ailing company, reasons for its decline, and its potential for turnaround. This semester, we're looking at The Gap, the $16 billion apparel retailer that has been struggling for years. We would like to ask your expert opinion on the following. Are Gap or any of its other brands leverageable into brand temples? Should Gap follow innovations in CPG and consider regionalizing or customizing its apparel? And any other recommendations on how to breathe new life into this 50-plus-year-old brand? Thanks, Prof G, for serving as a lifeline for me and my students. Thank you. That was a nice thing to say. And Montana is one of those, Montana is an amazing brand. I had never been there, but the promise of Montana was that they're just these incredibly nice people living in a beautiful place that just sort of reeks of buffalo and incredible mountains and uh, good Americans. And I went there and found all of that to be true. And I've also uh, did a remote class uh, at Montana State, I believe. Uh, anyways, anyways, thanks for the question. So let's talk a little bit about the gap. The gap has a lot of headwinds and has for the last 20 years. I think it was one of the best performing specialty retailers of the 90s, 80s and 90s. An interesting story. So Bill and Doris Fisher had a record store and they started piling up Levi's. And then Mickey Drexler came in and said, I see that the future is no longer about advertising. Fall into the gap was their big ad campaign. It's about going vertical and putting in uh, beach blonde wood and bigger dressing rooms and controlling the environment, controlling the smell, and then designing and merchandising and manufacturing and supporting your own look, your own feel. And they brought a sense of flair, a sense of design and style to kind of affordable basics. And that was the gap. It was, and it was incredibly powerful. Branding had moved to the store. It was no longer about Levi Strauss and company, which was the biggest apparel manufacturer in the world, using broadcast advertising as a sword. That sword got duller and duller. And then branding moved to the store as broadcast advertising got less effective and more expensive. Mickey Drexler realized his transition was taking place as it was at Starbucks and across a, a bunch of specialty retailers. And the gap kind of kicked off this era of specialty retail of the limited. William Sonoma, 
Pottery Barn, also owned by William Sonoma. And the gap was sort of broke new ground here. Then, then it kind of got stuck in the middle, right? There was the fast fashion guys, the Zara's of the world, right? The H&M's that basically said, we'll give you kind of 80% of Old Navy, but more fashionable. And we'll create this unbelievable supply chain where we can get stuff from the runway to a factory, to a store for a fraction of the cost and a fraction of the typical time, not as high quality, more consumption, but scarcity, it's in it's in our store. We make less than, than demand and it creates a sense of urgency. Boom, Inditex, the founders of Inditex are the second wealthiest family in Europe just behind Bernard Arnault. Where was the other side of the spectrum that was doing really well? And that is the middle got crowded out by the small guys, the fast fashion guys, or, or the Dior's, the Hermes, the Chanel's of the world that have been killing it. To a certain extent, it's sort of a larger indication of what's happened in terms of income inequality, where the middle class has less money, uh, the wealthy have more money, or people either want extreme value or extreme value add. And the gap is kind of neither of those. Old Navy, fastest zero to a billion dollar retailer in history, by taking this axiom that is really powerful, 80% of the gap or 50% of the price. JetBlue, fastest zero to a billion dollar airline, 80% of Delta, or I don't know, 60, 70% of the price. I would argue it's 110% of the value of Delta. I love JetBlue. Anyway, anyway, what could they do? Uh, this is a difficult one. I think that if you look at demographics, the most exciting part of specialty retail in apparel, in apparel is going to be resale. Uh, specifically, rental has been really interesting, uh, subscription rental. Uh, but I think the marketplace is moving towards resale. And that is, Younger people are much more focused on ESG and sustainability, and they're much more comfortable wearing other people's clothes. My generation does not like the idea of wearing someone else's suit or someone else's dress, so sort of secondhand resale, if you will. Supposedly, supposedly, resale is going to be bigger than fast fashion by 2027, which means in a short six years, there will be more wealth created in that category than in fast fashion. So we're going to have an extraordinary explosion, including probably what will be one of the wealthiest families in the world that figures out resale. So there's probably nothing wrong with the gap that can't be fixed with what's right with it. They attract fantastic uh, human capital. They have very smart people. They have good brands, if not great brands. They're pretty good at real estate. They've been on the wrong side of trends for a long time. Old Navy, they were talking about spinning. But if you're asking me for a focus, if you will, I would say that it's probably around resale. Thanks for the question. Algebra of happiness. So on our other podcast, Pivot, we interviewed a woman named Reshma Sajani. Uh, Reshma is the founder of Girls Who Code and has a new initiative called a Marshall Plan for Moms. And her viewpoint is that if we want to get the economy restarted, there is an opportunity to uh, basically UBI for moms that if you look at, that would be means tested. But if you look at uh, the cohort that has taken one of the biggest hits in this pandemic, simply put, it's moms. And a lot of us have seen this firsthand, that the dispersion, if you will, of education of kids from schools, a lot of, a lot of which aren't open, has been dispersed to the home. And the notion that an eight-year-old is going to be able, able to do remote learning without an adult next to him or her is just somewhat of a fantasy. And 
as many articles or well-publicized articles as there are about dads contributing, and I don't you know, counter the notion there are a lot of wonderful fathers out there who are contributing, the majority of the burden still rests on the shoulder of the mom. And as a result, you've had a lot of moms who have had to put their career on hold. Uh, a lot of women who were especially hard hit, uh, part of the cohort, lower income cohort, um, that registered a 40% interruption in work from the pandemic. So net net, and this is a scary stat, the number of women in the workplace has declined to where it was in the 80s. And so we're going to see wage destruction, and we're going to see a giant step back in terms of some of the gains that women have made. I, I registered or saw the impacts of this firsthand. Um, I was raised by a single mother. Uh, both my parents were talented in their own way. Neither had a very good education. They both were pulled out of school in the eighth grade. But when my parents split up, my dad went on to make $50,000 a year, and my mom went on to make $11,000 a year because back in the 70s, as a woman, if you didn't have a college degree, you could basically be a travel agent, a real estate agent, uh, or a secretary. You couldn't even be a teacher. And our lives just got, quite frankly, just so much harder. And if you think about a productive society, and it's very easy to say, well, it's all about the children, but is it, are we really investing around children? Because if you want to invest around children, you got to invest around moms. And we keep waiting for companies, better angels to show up. And we talk about family leave and parental leave. And what happens, the companies with the best family leave, the companies with the best parental leave, the companies that provide protection for women when they return to the workforce are the best companies that are the most profitable companies because they can afford to do these things. And those tend to be the companies that quite frankly attract people that don't need that much help because the double E from MIT, she's going to be just fine. The, the moms that need this help don't have access to that level of corporation or typically have access that do really well. So is there, if we really want to make a great investment in our society, is a Marshall Plan for moms maybe a, a great idea? Not only that, the wonderful thing about moms, uh, especially those who aren't able to work or come from middle or low income households, is that if you give them money, they will spend it. It's just hard to imagine a better investment here. And we've been talking a lot about investments and basically basically saying that, okay, a small amount of money thoughtfully put away, and I don't want to say ignored, but put into index funds or good stocks, those small investments every day over time add up to something remarkable. And when you ask or you query people about the most important relationship in your life, the same thing is true. It's typically a function of whoever made the most small investments repeatedly over time. And for almost everybody you know, that's your mom. That's the person who woke up with you in the middle of the night when you had a bloody nose that, and, and, and did math problems with you. That's the person that got your ass out of bed and got you to school. That's the person that you know sewed your clothes. That's the person that, that managed to get to work and to get home. I've always thought that there's really just uh, uh, two fundamentals to success in America, and that is having access uh, to great education. I've always thought access, uh, a great education was the upper lubricant, and two, having someone who's just irrationally passionate about your well-being. For most of us, that's our mom. And if we don't, if we don't make an investment in mothers, I just can't think of a better place to invest. Think about all the money we put in small business, $750 billion. Think about all the money we're putting towards Airlines, we're investing billions of dollars to bail out airlines. Wouldn't the investment that foots most to, to what's really important in, in terms of our, our own lives, our own happiness, wouldn't that the best investment be in moms? MarshallPlanForMoms.com. 
Our producers are Caroline Shagrin and Drew Burrows. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of The Prof G Show from Section 4 in the Westwood One Podcast Network.